This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. Dear listeners, welcome to another episode of Urban Political Podcast. And today we are here to discuss the very timely and interesting book by Ross Beveridge and Philip Cook, How Cities Can Transform Democracy, published by Polity Press. And we are joined by the authors of the book. And uh, additionally, we have two great interlocutors, Roger Kyle and Julian Bordeaux. Perhaps could you introduce yourself? Hi, Nitin. Thanks for the invitation and the introduction. My name is Indir Roger Kail, and I'm a professor at the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change at York University, which is a suburban university in Toronto, the country's third largest university. And it has not only this Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change, but also a long tradition in urban studies and uh, maybe one of the most radical political science departments in the country of Canada, maybe North America. And to some degree, I will speak also from that position, which is why I'm mentioning that, uh, which is an important place to call my home, my intellectual home. So my name is uh, Julian Boudreau and I'm a professor at the Institute of Geography at the National Autonomous University of Mexico, UNAM. So I'm speaking from Mexico City right now. I've been living in that city for close to 12 years now. So uh, as Roger was saying, I will be speaking from that point of view as well, although um, my my previous experience, both uh, personal and professional, has been based as well in Canada, in Montreal and, and Toronto. Uh, but I'm just coming back from a very interesting trip to Naples, so I was very happy as well to read um, some parts about Naples in, in the book. So thank you for the invitation. Hi, everyone. Uh, first of all, thanks to Nitin and to Roger and Julianne for agreeing to do this. Uh, my name is Ross Beveridge. I'm a senior lecturer in urban studies at the University of Glasgow. Um, as we're talking about institute, uh, institutions and ins- institutes, it must be one of the, the few uh, departments of urban studies, certainly one of the largest in, in the UK. Alongside uh, my academic work, I'm also an editor on the Urban Political. Yeah, hello. Thanks, Nitin, for organizing this podcast. My name is Philip Koch. And I'm a professor in urban politics at the Department of Architecture at the ZHW Zurich University of Applied Science in Winterthur. And I'm happy to join the conversation. Thank you. Uh, so thanks all. Uh, thanks for the introductions. Perhaps, uh, Roger, would you like to come in first and say a few words about the book? Thank you for giving me the opportunity. I read this book a while ago for the first time and now again for the second time. Uh, in preparation for this, and it did not turn stale on me at all, I am even more enthusiastic about this book and its intervention, it, what it's trying to do, and uh, you know how it will lead to, I hope today we will show that, lead to interesting conversations uh, in urban politics. And that is true both for um, you know, academic debates um, on urban politics, uh, there is no lack of those. But also, of course, it's it's also about urban politics itself, and it can be read as an intervention into urban politics. So let me start then with a note on style. Um, I really loved reading the book. I, it was um, you know easy page turner, as much as one can say that about a book this theoretical. 
it is very well written and refreshing in style. It's not terse at all. It's not in any way uh, academic in style. Uh, unlike much other academic prose, it's a very academic book in, in, in many ways, but it's not in its style. It's different from typical academic books because it's dialogical and conversational and it's persuasive and it's illustrative. It shows what it's trying to do uh, through examples, but also through a language that easily appeals to people who are more than just specialists of urban political theory. The language used in the book is aimed at clarifying things not obscuring things with jargon and pretension. Its message is clear and it's explicit. It's repeatedly explicit. One knows what the book is about. It's analytical, normative, and programmatic, but never orthodox or dogmatic. So here's an example of the book's emphatic and winning styles, just one of many sentences that I wish I could write. They say, urban political is a bubbling and set of assemblages. Chafing, wriggling for space. Everyday encounters are crucial. Talking, connecting, making plans can develop common cause and forge collective action. This is a great sentence uh, to, to have somewhere in the middle of the book that catches the reader's attention in so many ways because it speaks to the direct experience of people, whether you are in academia or you, whether you're out in urban politics. The book is a generative critique of the discipline of political science with its epistemic nationalism in political science. And I'm a political scientist by training, and I don't often say that, and I don't often speak from the disciplinary view of political science. But here I do that because I think it's important to point out that I have been trained, as have been my interlocutors today, in this podcast, uh, we have been trained uh, from the national state downward and upward. Um, this is what makes political science work. And this book is a critique of that. But it's also a critique of the po of politics at the nation state level, the actual politics, the real politics of nation state level at the nation state level that operates as the measuring stick of all politics in practical political arenas, where a line is drawn against both sub- and supranational politics that situates such politics outside of the sovereign domain of the nation state, which sets the rules and boundaries of political engagement of any kind. The book, its authors, disabuses the reader from this conventional we uh, entertain to another and introduce to another view of politics. Instead, then, the book constructs politics from the deep experience of the proximate diversity of the city. That's a word from Warren Magnuson, which is cited in the book. But when using the term city, the authors immediately warn the reader that the object of their discussion is quickly losing its common reference. So while they're decomposing the nation state as the point of reference, they're also saying the city itself isn't so clear anymore as a point of reference. And that loss of reference has two dimensions. One is that the city is an emergent condition. And they say the city is not pre-given or stable, but emerging in social practices and collectives. And secondly, the city is decentered in spatio-temporal terms as the dimensions of urbanization and urbanism are taken on all manner of extensive forms. The emergent ontology of the city and the extensive epistemology of the urban are the characteristic cornerstones of the book to which the authors return time and again throughout the text. This is expressed perhaps succinctly in this quote, an emergent political order 
of the urban cult's long-established certainties of democracy into question, and at the same time forces us to reimagine what democracy in the age of global urbanization means. And from that, a reimagining of democracy and a reimagining of the city take shape in an intertwined process, which I think is very important. These processes are intertwined. That is both conceptual and empirical, abstract and concrete, situated and globalized. The book is explicitly dedicated to an engaged pluralism. And while highly theoretical and conceptual in its structure, it is informed by the empirics and experiences of today's urban life. They say, our arguments thus draw on contemporary political practices and collective acts, which are distinctly urban in their attempts to expand democracy, end quote. Programmatically, the experience of urban life itself nourishes democracy and urban democracy or urban politics create the conditions for the foundation of urban life. And when I say foundation of urban life, I mean two moments of that foundation. One is the creation of urban life, and the other one is that the foundation, like the foundation of a house, the substrate of urban life. And they say, uh, another quote, the city provides a democratic horizon for struggles on the right to be a part of urban collective life, to participate in the co-production of urban space, and to benefit from the commonwealth of urbanity, end quote. This also means that in contrast to much local political science research, urban politics cannot be reduced to formal politics or electoral politics, municipal administrative politics. I would like to say that the book is not naive, but conscious of the limits of its argument. And another quote, if urban collective life can provide an array of resources for democratic politics, there are also limits and contingencies. Urban conditions change and vary, become more or less conducive to enacting publics, end quote. And I'd like to later in the discussion perhaps come back to this point in particular. But the book ends on a hopeful note that is based not so much on hope as an expression of desire, but on actual politics in our cities today. The authors say in their conclusion, the city we have argued, is not a democratic idea stuck in the past of a sovereign city-state, but it's already being practiced by urbanites around the world who are making democratic claims to the spaces around them. End quote. And the end of my initial comments. Thank you. So perhaps I can follow up on Roger's summary and comments of the book. I, I want to uh, begin my intervention by recalling it was very nice. I was invited to this very uh, urban political podcast at the very, very beginning of the pandemic in April 2020. And I'm saying that to discuss to discuss uh, a book of mine, which is uh, very much discussed, um, uh, that is to say, Philippe and, and Russ are entering in conversation with this book of mine in, in How Cities Can Transform Democracy. And in that uh, moment in April 2020, when I was invited on this platform to discuss that work, um, it made me think quite a lot because we were at the beginning of the pandemics and I was thinking, oh my God, what if what I, all of what I wrote about global urban politics doesn't make sense anymore because the state is coming back with such a force? We were at the beginning of the pandemic and national and international politics was very much um, dominant. Uh, that is to say, we were all worried about what this would do to urban political life. Right. So it was a very nice uh, opportunity at that moment to reflect 
on that relationship, which is very tensed between national, international state politics and urban politics. And I'm saying this as a, as a mean of, of, of introduction because reading this book now in 2023, we're at another moment. And I, I realize um, it, the, the book gave me many, many answers to these questions we had in 2020 when the pandemic was just starting to hit us. And as Roger was saying, to me, the conclusion, as they say, is not about hope, but is about desire, desire for recognizing the performativity, the, the constant emergence of urban publics in, in urban politics. But I will also uh, repeat what Roger says, not in a very naive way. There is a very interesting and theoretically strong um, and also empirically interesting reflection on the relationship with state politics in, in the book. And, and this is what I want to insist on in my comments today. So First of all, I like the fact that the book starts with being very clear that the city is is not an abstraction, is not just a place on the map with clear boundaries. The city is a category of practice. The city is uh, also an inspiring imaginary, something that inspires urban publics as kind of an imaginary of what democracy is and should be. It's a political idea in as well as a political practice. And uh, also the book starts with a very strong philosophical and normative statement about what democracy is. So democracy is an open-ended project situated in practices. And, and to this, I relate very, very much because this is, I think, what most of us see every day in our cities around around the world. So I will structure my my comments on three main kind of themes. Uh, one is the question of sovereignty, which is discussed uh, quite extensively in the book. The second one is the question of norms and institutions. And the third one is this notion of interstitial distance to the state. And I will come back to that at the end. So on sovereignty, it's very interesting. I mentioned in, in the introductory comments that I was just coming back from a trip to Naples where we're starting a new project on humanities, uh, urban futures. And over there in Naples, we had this very interesting discussion on sovereignty. So it was very, and at, the, at that moment when we were in Naples, I had not read the book yet. So when I read this book um, in the past few days and I saw all of what you had to say about sovereignty, I was, I was very happy because it kind of came back to me um, some of the arguments that we could have used in that discussion in, in Naples. The starting point really is to kind of, in the book, the, the argument that Philippe and Russ are making is that we should dissociate democracy from institutions and from this idea of sovereignty. That is to say, democracy is always performative is always emergent. It cannot be fixed um, in this idea of, of sovereignty, which is very much related to state formality, right? So how do we enact democracy? We enact democracy through relations that developed in the cities and not through the control of a, of a territorial space, which is the idea of sovereignty. But, um, and this is what I very much like about uh, the discussion of sovereignty in the book, is that this does not mean if we dissociate sovereignty from democracy and from territorial space, it doesn't mean that democracy is aspatial, because the, one of the main arguments of the book is that democracy relies on materiality. We need a place for democracy to 
beautiful form and emerged. And they used, they developed this argument using, among many other authors, uh, the work of, of Judith Butler on assembling political publics and the fact that we need this material place uh, and bodies where and where democracy actually emerges. So I, I like that because it's a way of uh, thinking about democracy beyond this idea of controlling a piece of territory, but it's not aspatial. This brings me to the second point on norms and institution in the sense that what they're calling for is dissociating this idea of state formality of what democracy should be, rights and obligation, and, and all those mecha mechanisms to ensure the sovereignty of a democra democratic state. And instead they speak of uh, democratic instantiations. They speak of the development of democratic knowledge. They speak, they use a lot of example of um, the appearance in cities of, of urban publics, such as for instance, the chapter where they discuss the critical mass um, cyclist movement around the world, right? So democracy emerges, pops up in, in cities. So it, it doesn't rely on a set of norms and institution. However, when I was reading this, thinking about what's going on in Mexico City right now, I'm thinking how then can, if democracy is always performed and always emerging, how then can we make sure that it stabilizes for some time? So the question, because from a a classical political scientist point of view, this will be certainly always a question, right? So it's nice to have democracy emerging through urban publics in different instantiations over time and in different places. But in a place where you have a very long history of state intermittency, that the state can be there or sometimes it's not there. Like, for instance, Mexico or many, many cities of the global south, this very instability may be something worth thriving for in Europe and North America, where you have centuries of democratic institutional formation. But in other places where this is not the case, um, this very instability is part of the problem. It's not something we should thrive for in a certain way. So if democracy is always fugitive, is always performed, well, then how do you make sure that you don't have abuse of power? Because in a place like Mexico City, democracy relies on charismatic leaders, which is by definition always performed and always emerging and always discontinuous. And so there is kind of here, I, I think, a, a tension. Uh, it's a tension that I wasn't able to resolve myself in, in many ways, because what I see in Mexico is that the urban leftist political elite are thriving for institutionalizing democracy because it's not institutionalized. But by doing so, they empty it of its of its democratic content because it becomes very formal, very static, very bureaucratic. And in the book, they have this figure, which I thought, wow, this, this is an answer to this uh, conundrum that I was stuck in. They have this figure of the democratic craftspersons. And I thought this is very, very clever because who are the democratic craftspersons? They're not the, the charismatic leaders like this president we have right now in Mexico City, this AMLO, the populist president, which is a very charismatic leader, which is very authoritarian and, and anti-democratic in many ways, but they have these craftspersons, which are kind of these people in the city that actually weave democracy or, or weave democracy, weave democratic publics or the emergence or of, of self-governed um, initiatives with 
the state at certain kind of distance. Um, and, and this will come back to my, my third uh, point in a moment. So I think this is very interesting, this kind of intermediary point um, in real people, these craftspersons that kind of disseminate and, 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 and promote democratic um, knowledge. Because by definition, in a city like Mexico City, where the state is always intermittent, it's there and it's not there. When it's there, it can be very, very paternalistic, or it can be very, very abusive in terms of abuse of power. And then when it's not, not there, it's completely, it's negligence of uh, many places in the city. So how do people react to that? By definition, by self-government. This is how you make the city work. So by definition, Mexico City, according to the definition of the book, is very democratic in the sense that there's a lot of democratic knowledge of self-government, autogestivo in, in, in Spanish places, right? So people just make it happen. And there are huge amounts of, of these urban publics because the state is just either abusive or not there or very paternalistic. So these trash person are there all over the city. But institutionally, the city um, lacks democracy, right? So you have kind of a, um, I, I found in that book uh, interesting responses to this paradox in uh, in the context of Mexico City. And just to uh, not to take up too much time with these initial comments, another concept of the book that I really like is this uh, use, this development that you make of this idea of interstitial distance to the state. So you're saying, well, we cannot avoid the state and, and democratic norms and, and institutions. It, the state will always be there. So we need to think of how much distance do these urban publics, urban democratic publics need with the state. So instead of uh, speaking of being inside or outside the state or formal or informal, you speak of what does the state do to democracy and what are the points of contacts or the modes of engagement between the state and these urban democratic publics. And I find this very, um, very useful. And again, it's something that speaks very much to the situation I can observe in in a city like Mexico City. So I will just end these initial comments with that, and we can follow up in the discussion. Thanks, Roger. Thanks, Julian. Uh, that was really rich your commentary, and uh, I can only glean upon your comments. I would like to say that uh, by the time that this podcast would be out, uh, the listeners would have had the chance to also listen to the podcast of. Uh, around the book of Adam Auerbach, Machine Politics and uh, Migrant uh, Migration to Cities. Um, and uh, for me, uh, this book was somehow very interesting to cross-read with Adam's book, uh, which insists on how migrants sort of redefine the state and redefine political machinery. He uses this sort of like metaphor of machine politics, um, which was developed in, in the US to, to look at uh, politics of racialized people in American cities. And he tries to read Indian cities through that and uh, specifically how informal or squatter settlements rather in Indian cities, uh, how, how do they redefine the state and how perhaps sometimes the sort of authoritarian state uh, through the authoritarian lens sort of obscures the sort of re redef redefinition of the state and redefinition of urban politics itself. So when I, I got this book um, in, in, in my post box, the first uh, glance, at the first glance, I was just uh, praying that it should not be about urban triumphalism. And uh, it did not, uh, it wasn't. So I'm so happy 
because uh, somehow uh, the the cover had a hand which was carrying uh, you know this sort of spectacular looking building. So it, I, I was just praying uh, to God and praying to myself that uh, I hope it's not urban tranquilism. So and then when I opened, I I just uh, enjoyed reading the book on so many different levels. I mean, firstly, sorry, I'm I'm an architect here. Like just the format of the book is so readable and um, you can carry it around and um, it's uh, like, you know, the, the page size is somehow just beautiful and uh, the thickness of the page and everything. So the materiality of the book itself is really nice. But uh, just to come to the content of the book itself, I, I think there's not much to say after what you, Roger and Julian have said already, but uh, perhaps I would just like to add, um, I love this sort of, decentering of the state you know and then looking at uh, rather centering our attention to as julian said uh this sort of interstitial distance um and how you know the sort of different types of urban politics are framed and you you take us to these different uh, uh typologies or different different places where you describe how uh, these various groups are uh, defining their politics in in relation to the state and what kind of distance they're using uh, for that definition. But also, I loved how you sort of uh, center our attention on the everyday and how, you know, like some the everyday is often forgotten and you s- somehow bring bring the attention back and uh, uh, while not losing the attention to also state space, but like how the everyday everyday politics has the potential of redefining states space as you call it not state space but states space and uh, to to ground ground us again uh, from seeing like the state in, instead of seeing like the state you take us back into these different places i mean philip uh, i'm i'm assuming you wrote that part but perhaps in conversation with ross but to the squatter movement in zurich and then you know the whole progressive cooperative movement and but also highlighting the contradictions of these movements, no, like uh, how it's somehow the uh, the immobilian or the real estate company that gives the land to this cooperative is actually uh, implicit in kind of you know Nazi politics in the past, and it's problematic in itself. So I, I love that you you highlight these contradictions as well in throughout the book. But uh, what a lovely and um, emphatic ending to the book where you bring us to uh, Glasgow Ross uh, and then you you highlight the case of Sumit, uh, Sumit Sachdev and uh, Lakhvir Singh, two long-term uh, migrants and residents of Glasgow and uh, how the, the city police and, and, and the collectives in Glasgow sort of um, offer resistance to their deportation and are able to make them stay, you know, even under COVID-19, which was, you know, kind of a time of emergency. And I found that ending quite emphatic and, you know, like bringing our imaginary back to to very pressing forms of politics. I love how you, um, like chapter by chapter, you sort of bring us to give us a more complicated view on understanding uh, the urban political and urban publics and, you know, um, sort of decentering our ideas of citizenship and democracy and everything. So that was really lovely to read. Thanks a lot. Perhaps uh, I would I would like to ask two questions. Um, one relates to my work and I'm really interested in understanding and looking at uh, politics of inhab- inhabitation beyond the city. So inhabiting the extensions, so to speak. And uh, I'm always sort of like uh, very 
I try to look for um, these sort of interstitial movements and try to understand how people are fighting against evictions and um, how also the middle class sort of organizes in these extensions. But uh, in my view, w- what has happened is there's, there's an emergence of an ordinary politics, right? Like where everyone behaves as if they're the ordinary citizen of these extension, city extensions. Um, and uh, uh, the politics is quite fragmented, just like the fragmentation of these city extensions as well. And uh, I sometimes feel that the politics that 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 is being produced in these sort of urban extensions is somehow irreconcilable with each other. So um, it just uh, leads me always to a dead end where it's, it's uh, post-political, it's post somehow <laughs> framed as post-ideological, but... Uh, is very ordinary and uh, is is uh, is just like uh, different uh, forces acting against each other, uh, but without being explicit about it. So I, I would love your view about it, like how to perhaps um, use your book to rethink that notion of ordinary politics. And the second question uh, is perhaps mundane, which is uh, Philip and Ross, like, I mean, <laughs> It's it's quite rare for me for monographs to be published by two authors uh, more and more. I, I see people writing alone, you know, and that's something that is conditioned by academia as well. Like in order to progress on your academic track, you need to publish like single authored monographs. So I, I would I would love to hear what made you decide to write together. And how is the process? Because you're also coming from very different situations. No, I mean, Philip, you are such a Zurichite and you you perhaps think in German as well. And uh, you're, you're sort of embedded within different kind of realities. And Ross, you're such an Anglophone or rather uh, a Scottish guy. And uh, like, how do you sort of bring these, uh, you know, like uh, different ways of thinking and different ways of writing together? Perhaps implicitly I could read that, but it, I would be really uh, interested in listening how, how you wrote this book together. So, so maybe I'll go first, uh, <clears throat> just to make sure Philip can't say anything negative about me. Uh, to deal with the the second question first, uh, I think in terms of writing, um I think uh, um, you know people. We, we write a lot together on articles, and um, books tend to be something that we see as individual projects. But I suppose Philip and I have been working on articles hovering around uh, topics of politics and democracy in everyday life in the city. And I think at some point we just had an idea that we had to get get it out of our system, and uh, we had to do it together. And it was it was uh, it was seemed obvious that we we would write this book together. And uh, um, I think somehow, well, we've known each other for quite a long time. That helps, of course. But I think we we both have some background in political science, political theory, and then also a kind of distrust of that or some kind of distance to that, as Roger was saying, um, in terms or dissatisfaction uh, with where that leads you when you, when we think about um, the politics of the city. So, um, yeah, somehow it worked. It wasn't always peace and harmony, but um, it was generally pretty cooperative and we, we got on pretty well doing it and uh, it was good fun. So we might even write another one. In terms of your, your question, Nitin, about urbanisation and everyday politics being or having this uh, risk or, or reality that it, um, it's, it becomes so fragmented and 
almost non-ideological and too bound up in um, its own kind of rhythms and routines or narrow interests to kind of transcend that to become a, a kind of broader project. I suppose that's kind of what, what the book's really about in some ways. I think it's, it's, it's this reassertion of, of the idea that um, democracy comes from people coming together, this, this original idea of the demos coming together and space and um, we make this really strong argument that uh, democracy needs to be spatialized needs to have a location democracy isn't something that we can assume will solve everything indeed i think you know we're quite um we're quite contingent in our arguments um, but ultimately we say that the city and urbanization provide these resources uh, and we should use these resources more there's potential there that, that we can use to transcend uh, different uh, differences between us. I mean, I think that isn't necessarily a solution to um, non-ideological politics, but I think we we position this idea of democracy in relation to this frame of urbanization. So this idea of something bigger that's shaping us and that we that affects us in differential in very different ways and uneven ways, but that it can provide us some kind of sense of a political horizon. You know, there's an horizon of, there's an urban horizon, or there's a horizon shaped by urbanization, and that we need some kind of engagement with that. And how do we develop collective solutions to that? What do we call that project? And, uh, and we call that project democracy. And, um, and Philip and I were just talking quite recently that um, it's interesting in urban studies, uh, there are lots of books written about uh, justice. Uh, urban justice, justice in the city, and that, that's absolutely uh, an important thing to write about. But there are very few books written about democracy, and I think that's one of the things we wanted to do here was to kind of take this idea of democracy and take it away from formal politics uh, and say, look, people are already doing democracy, and they show us this different way of doing politics. And I think that doesn't provide a, a single solution to this movement from of fragmented self-interested politics to a kind of collective politics, but provide some kind of horizon and coordinates. Phil, you want to anything to that? Yeah, maybe just a few comments. Uh, first of all, many thanks for these generous comments on our book. It's just fantastic, uh, especially because your work were, were so important in, in the whole project. And you were always uh, thinking if we can kind of res resonate with that work and if it kind of comes together and so i'm really happy to hear that and um in and i think in this spirit also the second question on on our collaboration first of all i think we we are friends so the book was also a, a means to stay friends given our academic <laughs> lifestyle so uh, ross lives in berlin in glasgow i'm living in zurich and so the book kind of was the bracket that kept us together to, to a certain extent but of course, we had a content um, and an idea that we want to put um, on these pages. And I think I would recommend that if, if if you can imagine writing with someone, that you get along with him and that you have uh, shared ideas, it's certainly a, a good way to kind of develop new ideas and also be quite self-reflective and, and also maybe sometimes in, insecure. And you can, uh, being together insecure is, is easier than alone, I would say. So that's just for that. And the other part, I think what was interesting, maybe also to, to come back to your first question, is this idea of the democratic craftsman, um, which comes quite late in the book and also in, in the whole process of writing the book. And I think that's something we should 
develop at some point or someone else could develop that. It goes back to 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 Sheldon Woolen, uh, to whom we refer a lot. And I think that's something that might be also interesting to consider when, when looking at ordinary politics. So these persons who are maybe capable of, of bringing different projects and experiments together without providing a coherent framework or a coherent kind of idea or project. And I think that sometimes people kind of refuse those small projects because they are not bold enough or they maybe go in different directions. But I think we would suggest to, to see the positive side of these projects and also to have in mind that they, they will provide some memory like in the future. So people will <laughs> memorize that there was this project, that there was this quote, and we can refer to that. There's a history of democratic politics. And I think that's something we should not under undervalue because um, uh, otherwise we will just start all over again every time. And maybe that's also that we something that we want to highlight in the book, that there are some kind of hidden traditions that we might want to uh, show or reveal in different cities. And um, that there is kind of, as I said, this this idea of a, of a craftsmanship that we might want to collectively define and also kind of adjust depending on, on the specific situation. Can I in, intervene here? And because I ended on such an emphatic note when I described the book and its contents and I while I was rereading the book, I was um, worried about a few things that I also made known to the authors early when I first read the book, which has been an experience much of the kind that uh, similar to what Julian said in the beginning about the experience of three years of COVID and post-COVID and, and, and also sort of the, the politics of populism and, and right-wing populism, uh, you know, and I'm I'm curious about the craftsmanship, the urban craftsmanship. I mean, there is. We must not forget that cities were founded, and you you quote Engeneisen, our old friend, very deliberately in in many parts of the book. And Engen, of course, did his original work, his dissertation, I believe, on on the Canadian city and the colonial city, and how these were corporations in the first instance, and cities are corporations. And in the 19th and early 20th century, when urban politics in the way that we learn it at university and political science programs takes shape, there are these top-hatted politicians sitting around, uh, you know, these council tables making decisions as urban crafts people. And in the progressive movement, it was the urban crafts, and they were all craftsmen, most of them, uh, who then became depoliticized in a way. And they ruled the city because they knew stuff about water and electricity and about economics and finance and all that. I think that we need to think about that also as a tradition of urban politics. So when we want to dig into that joint experience of the urban as a political space and a democratic space, we must not forget that the modern city has been ruled by these specialists of the urban that often did terrible things. Sometimes they built the waterworks and public transit, and particularly under regimes of municipal socialism and all that. But often they did 
terrible things. They built prisons and they built uh, a welfare state that had a, a bad side to it. And all kinds of things like that have to be taken into account when it comes to that legacy. But today, in this present moment, which you said you are very interested in, because you're talking about the current urban politics, we have to deal with this, an urban political, which is potentially built on a craftsmanship that is extremely counter-revolutionary and counter-progressive. I'm thinking, you know, when Julian and I left Naples from our meeting last week, uh, when I landed in Munich, uh, I, I looked at my phone and I noticed that Berlusconi had died. And, uh, you know, I had nothing to do with it, even though I came from Italy. But uh, I must mention that uh, it made me think of the fact that Berlusconi, of course, his first wealth uh, through as an urban developer. So did Donald Trump. Uh, these are people who worked in and through urban politics to become who they became in the end. They became these globally ambitious populist politicians through the craft that they learned in the back rooms of City Hall and, uh, and all of this. So we need to keep that in mind. And just to close the cycle, to which I started with COVID politics, you know, I read the book um, in short distance to... Uh, a book that the German speakers here will know about uh, by uh, Nachtwey and Amrein on uh, Amrein on uh, the um, Amlinger, Amlinger and Nachtwey on Kränkte Freiheit, about the rise of a particular kind of libertarian authoritarianism. And uh, to keep that in mind, when we talk about the politics of the city today, is that during the pandemic, when we stayed at home to be good progressive citizens and we believed in keeping our fellow citizens healthy, the, the crazy right wing uh, was out there in the streets demonstrating uh, and creating urban publics of a certain type. Uh, and that, of course, was mostly brought uh, you know, home to us in Canada through the occupation of our capital city, Ottawa, for an entire month by uh, a group of sociologically spoken, very non-urban people who came in driving in big trucks to the city and occupying the city space, occupying, in that case, also the capital city space, and making that their arena for a certainly non-progressive and non uh, you know, non-urban and politics. So how would you react to that? And how, I mean, I know that you have thought about this and you write about it in the book, but I would like us to briefly touch on that because we can't not mention it at this point. I think, um, first of all, I think we uh, decided not to talk about this dark side of urbanization. I think we mentioned that somewhere in the book, that there is kind of a dark side to it. And we want to follow the more hopeful signs and that might well, might be a, a wrong choice or a biased choice that can be the case, but it has been a choice and it has been a deliberate choice. But we started off also this this project, I think, when when the Gilets Jaunes uh, were occupying a lot of streets in France. And that was one sign that there is um, something to a specific form of urbanization, as in France, where you have uh, a different form of articulation and a more kind of... Well, Gilets Jaunes is a bit more complicated. It's not just right-wing uh, populism, but there is kind of this relationality to urbanization where you kind of support centrality and then you produce a marginal 
spaces at the periphery and that this periphery will somehow come back to the center and try to occupy the center and get to into these resources. And I think that's something that we want to address more in, in, in terms of what kind of organi organization and collective action um, has to be in place so that these grievances can be formulated in a more democratic way. There, there must be some form of um, solidarity or commonality or sociability also outside uh, those spaces that we usually kind of connect to those forms of solidarity. And so our approach should also maybe serve as an inspiration outside of these centers and at, at more peripheral spaces to think about the, the openings that urbanization might provide. And of course, this sounds kind of naive when you look at uh, protests in, in, in Germany, but as a Swiss, I can tell, or my idea of that as a Swiss is we have now our late, uh, largest party, political party is a right wing since uh, 30 years. And what I can say is that there is a lack of organizing and community kind of activity on the ground, which kind of leads people to move to right wing parties. So there, there needs to be a more kind of situated engagement with political grievances. And that's something that we want to describe in the book. Yeah, just to follow up on that last point, then maybe make another one which is more related to the state. Thinking a little bit more, in, in, maybe not in terms of political science, but in terms of formal politics, you could make the argument, and lots of political scientists, political sociologists do, that. Uh, with the decline of political parties, we're thinking in the sort of global north context now, or the absence of that kind of political infrastructure, uh, and, the, and the absence of kind of uh, some kind of civic infrastructure, or the decline of civic infrastructures, you are more likely, or it is harder to um, counter these kind of movements. Doesn't it say that the, the presence of these kind of infrastructures will uh, mean these movements, these populist right wing movements, uh, uh, emerge? But it certainly means that uh, countering them could be more difficult. I think that's an important point that Philip makes in relation to the book. We're talking about this uh, a different form of understanding democracy. And I think to take that to a more strategic level, the argument that we make about democracy is a kind of theoretic, strategic point that it, it doesn't really have anything to do in its essence with the state. It's then kind of brought into this constant tension with the state as being an unavoidable force. And that's where we come up with this idea of the interstitial distances, which we take from Simon Critchley, who takes the basic idea, I think goes back to Marx, this idea that uh, you need to have uh, a space away from the state to generate uh, not just um, confrontational politics and a movement, a mass movement, but to generate political education and citizenship that there needs to be that kind of distance. But what Critchley argues, and this is when Critchley was still more of a political theorist rather than kind of philosopher, general philosopher that he uh, is today, was that essentially the, these democratic projects, it's true democracy, as I think Marx called it, just uh, has to engage in some ways with the state. That's because it's always internal to the state's uh, scope, uh, the power of the state. And, and I think one thing that, the, the, the we argue in the book, and, the, and then we have this chapter where we engage with these different new municipalist projects. You mentioned Naples, uh, Julian. We talk about Barcelona, Preston, Jackson in, in the US. And we try to illustrate the tensions which occur from taking adopting these different positions to the state. But what, what all of these positions are about, of course, is um, this political power. 
And uh, one thing that um, we don't probably address, or that we don't probably, I know we don't address it, I don't know why I'm putting probably in there, is, is the question of, of power. We kind of try to deal with it in this, this illustrative notion of uh, interstitial distances. Uh, but what's underlying that, of course, is the possibilities which uh, emerge from engaging with the political power of the state and the compromises which then uh, occur through um, being co-opted or being far away from institutional power and institutions. And so in a kind of roundabout way, I think um, what we're saying there is that uh, at some level, at some kind of fundamental level, all forms of kind of urban democracy will have to engage with those sources of power. And I know that the, ultimately uh, the source of democracy can be the state. Uh, there has to be some kind of push towards the state and, and to avoid perhaps this fragmentation um, and some form of institutionalization. Uh, and you mentioned this notion of fugitive, uh, fugitive democracy, which also comes from Wolin. This is the idea that democracy is always fleeting and can never be kind of fixed and uh, established because once it does it, then it, be- it loses its kind of essence of self-governance and everything like that. But uh, the point we make in the book, going on that, is that um, one reading of Walden's work is that uh, he, he thought that about democracy, but it wasn't necessarily something that he cherished about democracy. So he was always looking for kind of ways to advance some kind of form of um democratic consciousness. I mean, you could use the word culture, but that's also you know, problematic and opens up lots of uh, uh, questions in itself. So, yeah, so I suppose there's something about this, this sort of rolling out of some kind of democratic consciousness through urban space and then this sort of strategic engagement with the state as, as an idea and as a source of power. I think I have to stop there. If I may come in on, on the question of power, I think this is absolutely crucial in the sense that many of the urban publics, democratic publics that you're talking about in the book are not striving for power. I mean, this is not this is not what they want, really. The question is, is and, and I think this is important because this is also what I see very much in my own work, working with similar urban publics in, in Mexico City right now, is did they just... Power is not of interest to them. Um, that's not what they want. And this comes to the question of, of what's their what's their desire, what's their what's their goal, or what because you mentioned transformation at some point also, and many points in the book. Uh, I think what do these people want to do is to change their immediate life environment. Uh, they, they, they don't at different scales. Some of them very, very micro, some of them more at a societal scale or ecological, et cetera. But the question of power, I think, is interesting. You don't address it directly in the book, but it's interesting to dissociate it also from the state. I mean, there is for sure this need and you 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 do it very well. You just synthesized it with this question of, of how do these publics strategically decide to uh, engage with the power of the state, but it's many of them are not, this is not their interest, really. They just want, so I, what I'm trying to say is I'm wondering if what we're talking about is not necessarily just power, but to be more specific would be violence in the sense that what what these right-wing populist movements that Roger mentioned want or what the 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 self-governed groups I'm working with on the periphery of Mexico City want is to avoid 
abuse of power and to avoid violence by the state or by other actors in certain ways. So I'm not sure. I mean, I know this is a question of power. Power and violence are, are related to one another. But it's in, in a certain sense, what democracy is not really about power. Democracy is about a way of living and transforming this urban materiality you're talking about in the book. And it, one of the things we need to make sure about is, is how do you avoid violence in the process of practicing democracy in certain ways? Um, I, I, this changes a, a little bit the discussion we have normally about in political science, about power and democracy in the state, et cetera. But I think following your lead of, of dissociating institutions from democracy, perhaps we should also dissociate power from institutions, right? And 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 in, in reality, the effect of power is violence in many ways. And so maybe this is what we should talk about. I find this the last bit of your conversation particularly fascinating. And I don't want to get involved in that and not drive that further, but I want to perhaps move us to another plane and a plane of horizontalism and away from sort of the vertical relationships to the state and and that and how to create institutions, which, I, as I said, I found this discussion extremely helpful. Uh, and the question of violence and power is absolutely central to that. But uh, I'm, I'm interested in two other terms. One is horizontality and the other one is autonomy. In this global world that you're taking as your starting point, and it's also, of course, uh, the basis of Julian's book. Um, and I, I need to point out that all four of us here are authors in the same for the same publisher. And uh, I've done two books for polity in the last few years, and Julianne is in the same series, and you are too. So there is a bit of a debate going on uh, already, which I actually I wanted to point that out and make it explicit. is actually a great format through which to have these kinds of debates. But um, one of the things that uh, that I was thinking about is that some people have used this idea of global urbanization as another entry point of something that has been going on for quite some time is this Hanseatic idea of winning worlds, not the barber idea of mayor's root. But it is sort of this idea that, uh, which is has a, a roots in anarchism, it has roots in uh, municipal socialism, but also in social democracy, and roots in Marx's understanding of dissolving the contradiction of the countryside is to, is to horizontalize uh, the way we govern ourselves through uh, separate autonomous uh, urban communities that sort of live side by side uh, in in a, in a way, but also some a somewhat autonomous. If that is a, if this is a positive, largely positive version of a horizontalized urban democracy, there is also again the other side. And I just happened to listen to Jagoda Maric's interview with. Um, Slavoj Žižek yesterday, and he made that point, and I don't necessarily take that as an endorsement, but he made a smart point about, you know, the refutalization of capitalism, and that is capitalism moves away from these nation-state-based um, forms of organization, of politics, to a relationship of you and me and Google in a very direct way, in a sort of a feudal relationship that we have with our little machines and the devices that we have, and with Amazon that gives us little presents on our doorstep. And you know, so we have a completely different form of capitalism to deal with that organize other forms of power in also a horizontal way, in a feudal type way, also hierarchically in terms of creating new dependencies. 
in that horizontal, largely horizontalized world in which you can have anything you want. If you have money and a credit card, you can just order everything you want and you can have all the information if you have the internet that you want and you're sort of participating in this horizontalized world, which at the same time is a world of these new hierarchies. So how do these autonomous, potentially autonomous urban communal forms of politics fit into this new terrifying world of uh, refutalized global capitalism? That's uh, obviously not an easy question <laughs> to address. But I think we also discussed that at some point uh, writing this book. I think maybe it's also a response to that development that we observe now. So uh, when we see that the nation state might not provide the services and the legitimacy that it has been uh, or that it used to, and also maybe the nation state does not provide the democratic kind of arenas or platform. And that's also kind of a, a result of this reforgeralization or regionalization of capitalism so that the nation state kind of lose track of all these different layers and scales of, of production and, and capital. So maybe that's just the answer to that. So that's really kind of a passive or reactive to a development that we already see. And so it's not really progressive or transformative in the first place, but it's more kind of how can we stick to what we are, what we have maybe, or how can we translate what we have as an idea of democracy, as self-government and also as solidarity. And um, as Julien uh, uh, said, that we try to have an impact on our immediate urban space. So how can we do that when the nation state or formal politics is not really of, of big help in that? So it's really kind of reactive. So that's one interpretation of, of maybe what we're trying to develop in the book. But I think it's also uh, on a posit more positive or more active note, it's also a call against this form of individualism that uh, these individual relations between uh, corporations or Google kind of services and, and single customers, that there needs to be kind of a collective uh, idea which goes beyond this imaginary of the nation and of the people. And I think that's the more positive or more um, normative active side of, of the book that we kind of developed the, uh, the idea that there is a spatial, not identity, but connections that are located and situated and that might turn into something more politically productive, also democratically productive. But I, I think it's a huge question. And I think it's also a question that which kind of comes down to earth quite differently, depending on where you look at. So just very briefly, I, I, would, I would say that um, the idea of the city is, is the way of trying to counter some of that. That's the way of kind of locating projects which go beyond uh, these kind of relationships, trying to create these, these locations of demos coming together or publics coming together. And this, the hope that this imaginary of, of the city you know, within processes of urbanization can somehow bring people together to counter these kind of processes. And I know, of course, that's something which uh, Julianne, Julianne's book also engaged with these forms of agency and transnational agencies as, as well as agency in one, one place. Uh, uh, but yeah, I think the, the whole book is a name for, for trying to counter that kind of thing. You know, the city is the, is the place where we should, we should try to counter that. Right. Uh, I think uh, we've taken up quite, quite some time. Thanks a lot for this really generative exchange and uh, for all your comments and kind feedback. Uh, 
I hope, uh, Ross and Philip, perhaps you write a future book taking into account all these things. And uh, it's been such a pleasure to read this one. So I'm really looking forward to reading further work from you. And I hope you keep writing together. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and, and thanks, Roger and uh, Julianne, for that fantastic engagement. Um, so much to think about impossible questions, almost impossible questions to to answer. Um, lots of uh, food for, for thought. It was a pleasure. And I, I second Julianne's thought at helped me a great deal as I was leaving Naples to understand what we actually talked about as we talked about humanity's urban future, because um, these are some of the ideas that we need to grapple with. Thanks. Thanks. It was great. It's great talking to you as well. Thanks to you for listening. For more information, visit our website, urbanpolitical.podigy.io. Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.